Years ago, the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel reported on a home burglary. The homeowner who was burglarized had been out visiting friends. When he returned, the television, the electronics, even the valuables were all ignored. They were still there. All that was stolen was a container filled with white powder. You see, the thieves thought they had scored some cocaine. But it wasn't coke in the container. It was the owner's sister, Gertrude. That is, her cremated remains. Imagine the thieves trying to get high snorting old Gertie. Yet their mistake helps illustrate the Jewish leaders who arrested Stephen. For they too were trying to get high on ashes, on the remains of what was dead. They had put their trust in the temple and in the traditions of Judaism. Religion had produced a self-righteous high, but it was nothing but ashes and death. For Jesus had ended the law. Christianity was God's new way. It had made the law obsolete. God's law exposed our sin, but it was God's spirit who provided forgiveness and power for victory. The law condemned, but it was grace that saved. And yet the Jews were still zealous keepers of the law. They were snorting old Gertie, you might say, whereas Stephen was high on God's spirit, full of the love and power and joy of the Lord. You remember Stephen started out as a deacon, a table server, And yet God used him as a miracle worker, even a theologian. And at each stage of service, Stephen was faithful. You know, he found that God often rewards faithful service with broader service. The Apostle Paul might have been thinking of Stephen when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen does what Peter did earlier in Acts. He uses an inquisition to proclaim the gospel. At the end of chapter 6, Stephen glowed with God's glory, while the high priest believed a false story about him. The Jews accused Stephen of blasphemy against the temple and the law, but he disrespected neither. Stephen never discredited their proper role in God's plan. He just knew that through Christ... God was doing a new work in the world. And this is the point of the sermon here in chapter 7. Stephen preaches a masterpiece of a sermon. He surveys Jewish history to show how God was always up to something new, yet each divine initiative was met with Jewish resistance. You could call Stephen's sermon here a panoramic view of Jewish stubbornness. Acts chapter 7 begins, Then the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. God spoke to Abraham while he still lived in Mesopotamia, the birthplace of idolatry. Early Mesopotamians actually worshipped the moon goddess, which reminds me, you know, if they found insects on the moon, you know what they'd call them? Answer, lunatics. (laughs) 
lunatics. Just a reminder of what's been missing around here since I've been gone the last couple of weeks. (laughs) But Stephen's point is that God went right into a pagan land. He picked out a man to father his people. God was doing a new thing. God is always doing fresh works. Well, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father Terah was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. You know, it's interesting. Abraham died with only a promise. He was a stranger in a strange land from the time God called him out of Mesopotamia until the time God called him to heaven. And you know, this is true of every life lived for God. Friends, this world is not our home. God doesn't want us to ever get comfortable in these tangible surroundings. He has us on a spiritual pilgrimage. And to avoid spiritual stagnancy, God does new things in us and through us. God is always doing a new thing. And yet the Jews in Stephen's day were stuck in a 1,500-year-old rut. They were resistant to God at every turn, as we'll see from this sermon. Verse 5. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. You remember the story. Abraham was childless. Yet God made promises to his heirs, which necessitated he have a son, that he, would, he and his wife would have a son in their old age. Now talk about new works. I mean, God promised Abraham the impossible, a miracle child. He would name him Isaac. He would grow up to sire a nation. And God's penchant for new things continued into the nation's future, verse 6. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Stephen's point again was that God is always doing a new thing. He's always uprooting and moving his people, providing new challenges and stretching our faith. Their growth had stalled out in the promised land, and thus God forced the nation down to Egypt and into slavery. God was jump-starting a need for him. They needed to sense their need for him once again. You know, a new work was needed in their hearts, and often that's true for us. Sometimes that's why God moves us out, jumpstarts our faith, shows us our need for him in a new way. And with this new work in their hearts, they had a new sign carved into their flesh. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Now, by the first century, the time of Stephen, circumcision was the unquestioned mark of God's covenant. All Hebrew males carried in their person this symbol. But there was a time when circumcision was brand new, and that's Stephen's point here. Even what the Jews viewed as an ancient tradition had at one time in their past been new and pristine. Well, back to the story. And to the patriarchs, becoming envious, they sold Joseph into Egypt. The Jews in Stephen's day were mimicking their ancestors of old. 
Rather than seek God's grace, they were stubbornly treating Stephen like the brothers had treated Joseph. You remember what his brothers did to Joseph. They feigned his death. They smeared his colorful coat with blood. And they sold him to slave traders en route to Egypt. But God was with Joseph and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt in all his house. Even in his travails, God was behind the scenes working things out for his good and for God's glory. You remember Joseph went from the pit to the prison to the palace. Though he was a victim of injustice, God was behind the scenes orchestrating his circumstances, positioning him to deliver the nation. And then the time came, a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. And here's the point. God moved on the hearts of kings. He caused famines. He used injustice. He manipulated trouble just to position his people for a new and saving work. Verse 14. Well, then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. Talk about a big family. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and, he and our fathers And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. God had promised the land of Canaan to Abraham's heirs. And yet the only parcel that Abraham himself ever owned was a burial plot. He was a wanderer at heart and he died owning nothing but God's promise. Not all of God's promises are realized in this life. Sometimes we have to wait for the life to come. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. The Egyptian dynasty under Joseph's influence was sympathetic toward the Israelis, but the administration that that was ousted Short, that, that administration was ousted shortly after Joseph's death. The succeeding dynasty became brutal. They feared Israel's vast numbers. Their Pharaoh ordered a genocide of Hebrew infants. And so, how did God respond? Again, he did a new work. Verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. Exodus 3 recounts how a faithful mom, a woman named Jochebed, she floated her baby boy down the Nile in a wicker basket. Her mini ark got stuck in the reeds. And it just so happened, as if things just so happened. Pharaoh's daughter found the child. She took him as her own and raised him in the palace. Again, God was at work doing something new. Verse 22, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. 
You know, ironically, the Pharaoh who killed the Hebrew babies financed Moses' education. God does new things, and often in a humorous way. Moses, uh, the Pharaoh even financed Moses' room and board. Pharaoh raised the Hebrew deliverer in his own court. You know, the first century Jewish historian Josephus gives us some extra biblical insights into Moses' upbringing. They're really interesting. He says that while growing up, Moses was such a beautiful child that folks would go out of their way to walk by the nursery just to look at him, just to behold him. As a young man, Moses, the prince of Egypt, and it's amazing how Moses looked like Charleston Heston. But Moses led a regiment of Egyptian, an Egyptian army against the Ethiopians and won a great victory. He was exalted among the Egyptians. You, you recall later when God calls Moses at the burning bush to be his spokesman. You remember Moses balked and you remember what his complaint was, what his excuse was? He said, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. But apparently, here we learn that he was selling himself short. For notice, Stephen says of Moses, he was mighty in words and in deeds. Moses was a powerful, natural orator. It wasn't communication skills he lacked, it was confidence. While growing up in Egypt, Moses was popular and talented and intelligent and articulate and courageous. Moses was on top of the world. But the world didn't satisfy Moses. And so when he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Somehow Moses knew that he was a Hebrew, that he had been chosen of God. And he sought to understand his roots, his people, and his God. It's been said... It's hard to know where you're going if you don't know who you are. And Joseph went to the Hebrew camp to find himself. And as Moses walked among the Hebrews, he saw one of them suffer wrong. He defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. It was just an instinctive reaction on Moses' part. He saw an innocent Hebrew being abused by his Egyptian taskmaster. And he took matters into his own hands. He defended the man. And the violent confrontation that ensued resulted in the death of the Egyptian. Moses thought the Hebrews would consider him their hero, and not so. Verse 25. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who are you to, make, to be a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? I mean, a mere 24 hours after the incident, and Moses' vigilanteism was public knowledge. Moses knew he needed to get out of Egypt and fast. Then at this saying, Moses fled. And became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. You know, at some point in Egypt, Moses must have sensed that God had called him to deliver his people from slavery. But rather than wait on God's timing and employ God's methods, he took matters into his own hands. We need to be careful not to do that. 
His botched efforts ended in disaster and in his escape from Egypt. And yet, despite man's failure, God was about to do something new. Isn't that amazing? Despite our failures, God is still always up to something new. God gives Moses a new life in the land of Midian, complete with a new wife. He even bore two sons, verse 30. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. 40 long years. And suddenly God speaks to him in an amazing way, a bush that burns but isn't consumed. God speaks to him from that burning bush. You know, Moses' life breaks down into three 40-year periods. The first 40 years was in Egypt in the court of the Pharaoh. The second 40 was in Midian on the backside of the desert. And the third 40 was spent leading the nation back into the promised land. It was D.L. Moody who noted, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was a somebody, 40 years in the desert learning he was a nobody, and 40 years as Israel's leader showing what God can do with a somebody who knows he's a nobody. (laughs) God had to humble a haughty Moses before he could use him. You know, it's amazing. It took God 80 years to mold a Moses. Why are we so impatient? (laughs) Often we run ahead of God and we put confidence in ourselves. We need to learn our lessons and wait on God's timing. Well, in verse 31, Moses is at the burning bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Now notice verse 30 says that an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush, but the voice that spoke identified himself as God. And that's how Moses treated him. He turned his face. He trembled in reverence. Now, the Hebrew word translated angel simply means messenger. I believe more often than not, when the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, it's none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus. Stephen is implying here that it was actually his Lord Jesus who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Imagine that falling on the ears of these Jews listening to Stephen. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Again, God worked in a new and unexpected way. But the stubbornness of the Hebrews was predictable. God's Savior was Moses, the deliverer. The Hebrews rejected. And the mistake the Jews made with Moses was again being repeated with their Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 36 continues. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. And who is the he who brought them out? It's the angel of the Lord 
who spoke from the bush. Again, Stephen is saying that Moses was sent and empowered by the angel in the bush or Jesus. It was Jesus who delivered the Hebrews from Egypt. Stephen is saying the man that the Jews of his day were rejecting was the hand behind Moses' miracles. It was Jesus who engineered the plagues. It was Jesus that parted the Red Sea. It was Jesus that sent the manna from heaven. It was Jesus who brought water from the rock. Ironically, the traditional Jews that Stephen is addressing were rejecting the same Jesus who had been so instrumental in the key moments of their history. And again, Stephen points to Jesus, verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 18. The prophet like me that Moses had predicted was none other than our Lord Jesus. This is he or Moses who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. Moses wasn't alone in the wilderness. The angel was with him. The angel, the messenger that spoke to Moses from the burning bush and gave him the law on Mount Sinai was Jesus. And yet the Jews rejected him then as they were now. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You just grieve over the hard-heartedness of those Jews. During the 40 days that Moses was on top of the mountain with God, receiving the law, Israel's faith waned. They desired a God that they could see. And so they asked, Abraham, uh, they asked Aaron to forge an idol. And yet this was the pinnacle of their stubbornness. For just a few days earlier, the true God had shown his superiority over the idols of Egypt. You, you remember those 10 plagues that God used to pry loose the grip of Pharaoh? Those 10 plagues were an, a direct assault on Egypt's idols. Through those plagues, God proved his supremacy. He proved his supremacy over the Nile God when he turned the river to blood, over the fertility goddess when he sent the frogs, over the sky God when, he, when it held over the Ra, the sun god of the Egyptians, when the sky went dark. He defeated a supposedly divine Pharaoh by putting to death his firstborn son. Just a few days earlier, God had won this victory. Now the Hebrews are clamoring to Aaron to make them an idol and to take them back to Egypt. Their rebellion against Almighty God was astonishing. Sometimes ours is too. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And here's an insight that Stephen provides that we don't read about in the books of Moses. Not only did those who exit Egypt bow to a golden calf, they also worshiped the stars, the host of heaven. 
They were into astrology and horoscopes and guidance from the stars. They exalted the creation above the creator. In verse 42, Stephen quotes from Amos chapter 5. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rimphon, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Moloch was the god of the Moabites. Rimphon was an Egyptian demon. You know, it seems barbaric today, but Moloch was a hollowed out statue that was stoked with fire. Imagine a bronze statue aflame, hot with fire. It's had the effect of a wood-burning stove. The Moabite parents would then place their babies in the arms of the image and watch their babies fry to appease his anger and to attempt to coax from him a plentiful harvest. It was horrible. And when we read about it, we shudder at the callousness and the brutality of the ancients. And yet we moderns are just as evil, aren't we? Today's parents abort their babies on the altar of convenience or career or choice. Today, Moloch worship goes by names like the right to choose or family planning. And Stephen now speeds up his survey of Hebrew history. You see, Israel's idolatry lingered for nearly a thousand years until God turned his people, Israel, over to the world's most notorious idolaters, the Babylonians. And in verse 43, Stephen mentions the Hebrews being carried away beyond Babylon. Jerusalem fell in 586 BC, and the people were deported to Babel, the birthplace of idolatry. They lived there in exile for 70 years. But this was the vaccination that cured the Hebrew nation of its idolatry. For in Babel, they developed such an abhorrence to idols. They were surrounded by them. They saw the evil of them that they never again followed idols. Upon their return to the land, the Hebrews had put away idolatry, but they had developed a new problem. No longer idolatry, but now hypocrisy. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. Now recall, Stephen had been accused of disrespecting the temple. The tabernacle had been its predecessor. And to speak evil of either was an affront to God. The Jews thought as long as God's temple stood, they would be assured of his blessing. But Stephen says that this is a false assumption. The tabernacle stood until David, but then God did a new thing once again. In verse 46, David inquired about a temple. David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. David, remember, had been a man of war, and thus God didn't want him building the temple, so he left the task to his son. But God taught David a bigger lesson. For Stephen here quotes from Isaiah 66. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. 
What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? See, Stephen argued and the prophets supported him that God was never confined to a temple. God is far bigger than any man-made temple. God made the entire universe. The earth is his footstool. No structure can contain him. And God will continue to do his work with or without a temple. And of course, the temple was the epitome. It was the bastion of religion. And we should beware, for confining God is still the goal of religion. See, religion tries to limit God's domain. It tells God where he can and can't go, what he can and can't do. Religion confines God to one place at one time, the temple on the Sabbath or church on Sundays. It puts God in a box. My question is, do you have God in a box? Do you instruct him on what he can and can't do? But the true God isn't confined to any man-made system or structure. God is Lord over every venue and every venture. He defies all limitations. Our God is bigger than anybody's rules or traditions. God does as he pleases according to his word. He surely doesn't fit into anyone's box. And Stephen realized that the Jews wanted God to stay in their box to obey their tradition, how dare God do something new? That was their attitude. Stephen speaks strongly to his accusers in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Well, they took great pride in the fact that they were circumcised. They were circumcised in the flesh, but they were uncircumcised where it mattered in their hearts and in their ears. This means that at heart, they were insensitive rather than tender. They were deaf to the voice of God. Stephen calls them stiff-necked or unbending, inflexible. They were resistant to God's spirit. In verse 52, Stephen asks the Jewish leaders, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And the answer was none. Every time God raised up a prophet, the nation tried to beat him down. The Jews tried to stone Moses. They tried to assassinate Jeremiah. And when they couldn't, they tossed him into prison. They prevailed in killing Zechariah. And after sticking Isaiah in a tree trunk, they sawed the man of God in half. The Hebrews hated God's prophets while they were alive. Yet once they were dead, oh, they revered them as mighty men of God. Israel was a nation of hypocrites. Stephen says, And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. The just one was a title for Messiah. Stephen is saying the Jews killed the prophets of old who predicted the coming of Jesus. And now you have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels And have not kept it. They thought they were friends of God. Stephen says, no, you're not. You're an enemy of God. The angel of the Lord led Israel. Other passages tell us that angels conveyed the law to Moses. Throughout their history, Israel had angelic help. And yet they still didn't obey God. You know, I'm afraid an angel could appear to some folks and they'd still resist God's will for their life. The murderers of Jesus were the enemies of God. 
And how did the crowd standing in the temple that day respond to Stephen's sermon? Well, verse 54 tells us, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. They snarled. The Jewish priests looked like pit bulls in clerical robes. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Suddenly the physical peels back and Stephen gets to peer into the spiritual realm. He sees God's throne and he's truly amazed. He beholds the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, Mark 16 speaks of Jesus' ascension into heaven. It says, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Notice Jesus sat down. Every time in the New Testament, it speaks of Jesus' heavenly high priestly ministry. He's always seated at the right hand of the throne of God, except here. The assumption here is that Jesus was so enthused, so excited over the faith and faithfulness of Stephen that he rose to his feet to welcome him home. How cool is that? Stephen sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, then they, the Jews, cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, like a defensive line, rushing the passer. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Apparently, this Saul, a young upstart rabbi, had been the ringleader in the opposition to Stephen. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In the throes of death, Stephen quoted Jesus in his final hour. He maintained a Christ-like attitude of mercy and forgiveness to the very end. What a witness this man was. You know, it's been said, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seeds of the church. And it was certainly true in Stephen's case. His death caused the rabbi Saul and many other Jews at the time, and even folks today, to consider that Jesus is Christ. He's the Messiah. He's our Savior. Which brings us to chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And of course, this was the Saul who would later become Paul, Christianity's greatest champion. Isn't it interesting that Stephen's Jewish executioner became Christianity's apostle to the Gentiles? God does have a sense of humor. Paul was part of Stephen's legacy. After Stephen's testimony, the rabbi Saul was haunted by what Stephen had said. He molded over. God used it to soften Saul's heart. We're told here that Saul consented to Stephen's death. The word consenting can be translated voting. It implies that Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, who voted to condemn Stephen to death. It's interesting. We know that one of the requirements for the Sanhedrin was that a member be married at the time, Paul may have had been married and had kids. 
Yet in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8, later after he converts to Christianity, he says that he's single and he wishes that everyone else was single just as he was. What happened to Saul's wife? Most Bible teachers believe that after he converted, Saul was abandoned. You know, even today in Orthodox homes, Jews who convert to Christianity, it's common for their families to renounce them, consider them dead. The point is, Paul paid a steep price to follow Jesus. Well, verse 1 adds, At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Understand now, thousands of believers in Jesus worshiped together in Jerusalem. The fellowship was sweet. The miracles were mighty. The growth was explosive. The grace was attractive. The Spirit's filling was thrilling. It was high energy and holy harmony. I mean, the church in Jerusalem was one cool church, man. It was the place you wanted to be if you were a Christian. Everyone was so buzzed with what God was doing inside the church, but there was a problem. They had forgotten those outside the church. They were neglecting the command of Jesus to preach the gospel, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and in Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. See, the church in Jerusalem had become a holy huddle, and it was time for God to break up the fellowship and ship some people out. You know, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, go, go into all the world. Now in chapter 8, verse 1, he has to shove the believers out of the nest and force them to go. And God uses here a little persecution to get some houses on the market and to move a few reluctant missionaries into the field. There's a lesson for us here. Certainly, our fellowship is important, but never forget We'll spend eternity with each other. We've only got a few short hours left to reach a fallen world that doesn't know Jesus. Well, the devout men, they carried Stephen to his burial, and they made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. I'm sure Rabbi Saul couldn't shake Stephen's witness, and so he lashed out at Stephen's faith. Oftentimes, Christianity's greatest opponents are those that are closest to becoming Christians. God's working in their heart. Paul was just proud. He was stubborn. He loved his tradition, and he couldn't believe that God would do a new work. Don't you get stuck in that kind of a rut. Saul was asking, how can a carpenter from Nazareth eclipse the prized institutions of Judaism? Why would God's spirit make his home the hearts of Galilean fishermen instead of this glorious, magnificent temple? Paul was stiff-necked. Remember back in Acts chapter 5, his rabbi Gamaliel said that if this new Jesus movement was not of God, it would go away. But it hadn't gone away. It was multiplying, and Saul couldn't entertain the thought that he could be wrong. And so he mounts a ferocious attack. He made havoc of the church, we're told. The word translated havoc describes a wild animal mangling its prey. Saul went berserk with hatred. He turned into a rabid dog. He spent every waking second plotting the extermination of Christians. Verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And yet God used him to work his purposes. 
And I'm sure when the persecution intensified, the believers wondered why. Some may have thought God had forsaken them, and yet he hadn't. God had a reason for the persecution. God was lighting a fire under the church to move them out into the world with the gospel. And that's when Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Notice here's another faithful deacon taking on greater responsibilities. Like Stephen, Philip here goes from table waiter to evangelist. He heads to Samaria. And recall, Jesus had paved the way when he witnessed to the woman at the well and offered her living water. She, in turn, had received him into her heart and had witnessed to the entire town. In Jesus' wake, John 4, verse 39 tells us, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Jesus had visited Samaria, but this was now new territory for the church. Samaritans weren't considered Jews. They were interracial, part Assyrian and part Hebrew. See, Christianity right here is about to cross cultural and racial barriers for the first time. God is about to prove that Jesus came for all men, not just Jews. Verse 6, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Similar to the miracles seen in Jesus' ministry were now occurring in Samaria. God was doing a new work among a new people group. For God is always up to something new. And notice Philip was not an apostle, yet he worked miracles. Don't you think that God's power is reserved for a select few? Who knows how God wants to use you and do a new work in your world? Notice verse 8. And there was great joy in that city. And then verse 9, but, (laughs) for no work of God is void of opposition and challenges, including this revival in Samaria. And next week we'll study what happened. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And Lord,